Do not hanker for fame. Do not make plans. Do not try to do things. <laughs> do not try to master knowledge. Hold what is, but do not hold it to be anything. Work with all that comes from heaven, but do not seek to hold it. Just be empty. Perfect man's heart is like a mirror. It does not search after things. It does not look for things. It does not seek knowledge. Just responds. As a result, he can handle everything and is not harmed by anything. Hi, everyone. In this recording, I fly solo and try to cover up desperately missing Claire by discussing the book of Chuangzi. Well, I guess the first thing I should say is, where is Claire? Don't worry, she hasn't disappeared. She'll be back. Obviously, she was the best part of this podcast, and it's probably pointless to, to fly solo every once in a while. But I thought it might be worth a try. Really, if nothing else, if no one was listening, I'd find these recordings still immensely valuable for me. I find that organizing my thoughts and saying them out loud is a really great method of thinking or study or contemplation. I'm trying to track down the source for it, but I recently heard that the early church fathers believed that a prayer is not heard unless it's said out loud. I'm not sure they literally believed this, but as metaphor, I think that that's a very wise thing to say. There is something, there is something that happens when I say these words out loud as opposed to just bat them back and forth as disembodied, vaporous thoughts inside of my skull. It helps me concretize them in a way. So obviously it goes without saying that nothing I ever say in these recordings is settled. Every hypothesis or epiphany or insight or observation is tentative and subject to potentially immediate reversal. I'm just thinking out loud here. When I was an undergraduate, I remember reading Anna Karenina for the first time and going to my Russian professor and asking him what I should do now. It was very hard for me to articulate my question then, and it still is hard for me now to do so. But I wanted to know how I should change my life in response to what I had just read. I felt so profoundly moved, and I sensed that it was a very wise book, but I wanted there to be a way to make that wisdom infect me. I wanted to own that wisdom. I wanted it to become a part of me. I felt that that is what I should be striving for, to become wiser more intelligent, better somehow, more, I don't know, empathetic or self-aware or more insightful. I thought that this book should be improving me somehow. I felt that way for a long time, and I still feel this way. I think all humans feel this way to some degree. I love this quote by Emerson. He said, I never did find a carriage that went fast enough for me. He was always chasing something. It was never never a time where he felt satisfied with what he had or where he was or who he was. Rilke, at the end of the Archaic Torso of Apollo, says, you must change your life. I think this is a very natural and normal thing to feel, especially in the face of great art. When Claire and I read The Pearl, we emphasized this little chunk. Steinbeck writes, for it is said that humans are never satisfied, that you give them one thing and they want something more, and this is said in disparagement. Whereas it is one of the greatest talents the species has, and one that has made it superior to animals that are satisfied with what they have. So I read about, you know, Beowulf or Achilles, and take them as examples of what I could be, examples of noble striving and sacrifice and courage. Then I read the Tao Te Ching, and, and then I read Nietzsche, on the other hand, who has this idea of amor fati, the love of fate, and that we should utter a kind of unconditioned yes to everything that is, and not strive to change it. It is It is only what it can be. In the Tao Te Ching, we read, the wise are not focused on any outcomes or achievements, therefore they always succeed. And there is an immense peace in taking what comes as it comes, and acknowledging that, in a way, it can't be otherwise. But still, I find myself asking, should I work to learn this language or this instrument? Should I nudge my kids into more consistent reading or teeth brushing? Well, today's book, the book of Chuangzi, has been illuminating for me and has really made me rethink a few things. Even the statement itself, Chuangzi would probably laugh at since it implies that now, after reading Chuangzi, I have 
the real wisdom or more wisdom. I found the answer. I found some kind of secret golden spiritual nugget, the treasure at the end of some kind of philosophical rainbow. And this is just not the case, which is in part what this book is about. Maybe the best summary of the wisdom that Chuangzi offers would be to refer to the film The Wizard of Oz. As I'm sure everybody knows, at the end of that film, the lion finds out that he had courage all along, and the tin man finds out that he had a heart all along in the scarecrow, that he had brains all along. We are already what we have longed for, for so long, is the point. This moment right now is fulfillment. And I, as I am on this day, October 7th, 2021, am complete. Except I'm not complete. Where's Claire? There's nothing to seek. There's nothing to change. There's nothing to become. I couldn't change anything about myself even if I tried. I once laughed and kept laughing for many years at um, this moment in The Simpsons when Homer, (laughs) typically he's performed some kind of harebrained scheme and everything's gone horribly wrong and resulted in some kind of catastrophe. Marge is upset. And Homer, in this kind of resentful tone, turns to her and says, well, excuse me for having enormous flaws I never work on. But in a sense, that's a perfect description of the state that each of us is in. We may have a certain character and that character or personality, and that character or personality is the product of nature and nurture, in the same way that a tree or a mountainside is the product of the wind and the weather that surround it. But we think, oh, I need to be better. Um, I do have enormous flaws, and shouldn't I work on them? And shouldn't I feel guilty for not working on them? Shouldn't I feel guilty for not being as virtuous as so-and-so, or as kind as so-and-so? I'm greedy, and I'm lazy, or whatever it is. Every day, every hour, I feel like I have to improve myself. But I think Chuangzi would argue that we can't improve ourselves or the world. And any attempts to do so is just making our own psychological and emotional suffering worse. How could we improve ourselves? The thing that would do the improving, ourself, is the same thing that needs to be improved. A rock can't lift itself up off the ground, and we can't exactly pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We are what we are. We're all of one piece, right? Chuangzi would say, get on with it. There is nothing to seek. What's wrong with right now? Enlightenment now. Yeah, to quote the title of a famous recent book. But this is wisdom we can find also in many other sources. In Self-Reliance, Emerson says, Life only avails, not the having lived. Which as a statement I take to mean, All we have is right now. Life in the present tense. Montaigne says, We often, this is in his essay of experience, he says, we often say to ourselves, oh, I didn't do this today, or oh, I was I was lazy today, I was a failure in some way. I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't do anything. But then he notices this voice inside of himself saying, what, have you not lived? That is our only and most important work, to simply be. And I think over and over again, many, many wise people have tried to remind us that suffering is the assumption that something has to change, and the assumption that there is a method to produce this change. But there can be nothing other than what is. As Hamlet says in Act 5, If it be now, it will not come. If it be to come, it will, it will not be now. Let be, he says. So I, po- so I suppose there is a kind of path to attaining wisdom. There might be a way to satisfy the past and future me who wants to read books and become improved by them. We could call this the path or the journey. <laughs> But paradoxically, this path is to realize that there is no path. If a stone doesn't need to become not a stone, or a tree doesn't need to become not a tree, why should we need to become something that we're not? How can there be a path from where we are to where we are? You know, this can often be one of the traps for meditation. We sit there and think, oh, I'm supposed to achieve something. I'm supposed to change something. Something good is supposed to happen. Something better is supposed to happen through this practice. Um, This is supposed to be improving me in some way. There's this wonderful book called The Path is the Goal by Chogyam Trungpa. Chogyam Trungpa was a very influential Tibetan Buddhist monk and teacher. And in this book, he tells us that the goal of meditation is just to sit. There's never, ever in our whole lives a time where we just sit and be. 
We're always hoping, striving, working, running, achieving, dreaming, wishing, regretting. We're always trying to fix something. We're always trying to change what is. He says, this is not what meditation is for. Just sit. Simply be. Be in and with and and be what is. But this is very hard for me to realize. I have this feeling that there is a real path and improvement is possible. But when I read Chuangzi, I'm reminded that to accept what is, is the best way. Let's actually get into the book now. I'll give you a concrete example of this. There's this wonderful story of a butcher. Let me read it to you. This is in chapter three. This butcher, whose name is Ting, this cook. Cook Ting was butchering an ox for Lord Wen Hui. Every movement of his hand, every shrug of his shoulder, every step of his feet, every thrust of his knee, every sound of the sundering flesh and the swoosh of the descending knife were all in perfect accord, like the mulberry grove dance or the rhythm of the Chwing Shu. Ah, how excellent, said Lord Wen Hui. How has your skill become so superb? Cook Ting put down his knife and said, what your servant loves best is the Tao, which is better than any art. When I started to cut up oxen, what I saw was just a complete ox. After three years, I had learned not to see the ox as whole. Now I practice with my mind, not with my eyes. I ignore my sense and follow my spirit. I see the natural lines, and my knife slides through the great hollows, follows the great cavities, using that which is already there to my advantage. Thus I miss the great sinews and even more so the great bones. A good cook changes his knife annually because he slices. An ordinary cook has to change his knife every month because he hacks. Now this knife of mine I have been using for 19 years, and it has cut thousands of oxen. However, its blade is as sharp as if it had just been sharpened. Between the joints there are spaces, and the blade of a knife has no real thickness. If you put what has no thickness into spaces such as these, there is plenty of room, certainly enough for the knife to work through. However, when I come to a difficult part and can see that it will be difficult, I take care and pay due regard. I look carefully and I move with caution. Then very gently I move the knife until there is a parting and the flesh falls apart like a lump of earth falling to the ground. I stand with the knife in my hand looking around and then, with an air of satisfaction, I wipe the knife and put it away. He doesn't try to change what is, he doesn't try to push against what is, or hack apart what is. He goes with the grain of what is, and therefore there's no resistance. There's no pushback, there's no failure. This little excerpt gives us a great example of the ways in which Chuangzi is different from Lao Tzu. Both of them are considered to be the canonical authors of Taoism, again in my very, very limited exposure and knowledge of this tradition. But even though their ideas overlap a lot, their styles really couldn't be more dissimilar. Lao Tzu appeals to me for his distilled, very enigmatic, very pared-down, resonant, almost glowing, Rorschach-like aphorisms. The Book of Chuangzi is a wild, hilarious, messy, very human book full of all kinds of stories, anecdotes, jokes, metaphors, talking animals, talking weather dreaming butterflies. It's a kind of anthology of parables or examples. People who have managed either to find a way to live with the Tao or not find a way to live with the Tao. Not that I can really claim any successes here, but recently, just the other day actually, I was teaching a class, a poetry class, and I had this big thing planned. I had this PowerPoint. We were going to do this and this and this in that order. I thought it would be really great. I had worked a long time in preparing this lesson. You know, the ego part of me quite insistent that we move in this particular order and at this particular pace. And about eight minutes into class, I had barely begun. The power in the whole building goes out. It wasn't some emergency, you know, everything was okay. So we sat there for three minutes wondering what to do. And I thought, instead of fighting against the current of this power outage and trying to insist that my lesson go forward even in a new form. You know, I could have, I thought for a minute or two about trying to wing it and and give a kind of version of my lesson without all the visual aids, without the notes, and just to kind of push through and pretend this obstacle didn't there as if there was a big joint in this ox that I was just going to hack away at. <clears throat> I thought, let's just do something else. Let's do something easier. Let's do something that this gap in the universe will let us do. 
will let us pass through with ease. So as a group, so far this semester, we've been trying to memorize To Autumn by Keats. So I thought, I know, let's just devote a half hour now to making some good progress on memorizing this poem. We can do that in the kind of semi-dark that's illuminated now with phone flashlights and an open door. For some reason, the hallway lights were on. So we sat there in the semi-dark with uh, printed pages of To Autumn in front of us, memorizing silently, memorizing out loud, taking turns reciting this. I attempted several times to recite it out loud to them, failing miserably. We as a group tried to recite it all together out loud in a kind of chant. And it was strangely beautiful. It was strangely and profoundly moving. I felt like suddenly this wasn't a college class. This wasn't academia. But rather, there we were, like in the olden days, like Homer around a fire, reciting these wonderful incantations to each other and being totally swept away in their beauty, not worrying about transferring knowledge, conveying information, learning anything, just sitting there in the shadows, speaking a Keats poem to each other. It was really beautiful. And actually, To Autumn is a poem, it's a very Taoist poem, now that I'm forced to think about it. If you look at the last stanza, Keats asks, Where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too. We always want newness, prettiness, rebirth, something more youthful, something in the future, something that isn't now. But he tells us to stay in the now. Now is all we have. Think not of them, the songs of spring. Thou, autumn, hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day, and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue. Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly born. Hedge crickets sing, and now, which might be the key word in that whole stanza, hedge crickets sing, and now, with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. So right now is fulfillment in this very moment. Life is. Things are happening. Gnats mourn. Swallows twitter. Robins sing. Let's focus on what is. Hopefully I can learn from that experience, and when fate knocks me off of my intended path, as it always does, I can again find some way to roll with the punches, something I'm generally quite bad at. For me, a lot of the quote-unquote wisdom of this book, even though, again, Chuangzhou would remind us that there's, there's no extra wisdom to be attained, was what it means to be a human, what it means to be a person. And I was reminded of the etymology of this word person, which comes from the Greek word persona. This is the word that was used to describe the mask that Greek actors would wear while performing in a play. Per or per means through, sona means sound. So it actually... Etym etymologically means that through which sound moves, because the masks had these openings for the mouths, but the openings were kind of shaped like mini, mini bullhorns, mini megaphones, so that the sound would help project. Per sona, through sound, that through which sound moves. This is where we get the term person from. I think this is really illuminating. This is all we are. This is what a person is. A mask. Someone is someone or something is performing us. I am the role. I am not the actor. I am the role. I am the thing through which the energy or the sound moves. Another image might be a flute that thinks it's the blower. <laughs> but it's not. Most of my life I've spent being a mask that thinks it's a person wearing a mask. But I'm not a person wearing a mask. I'm being worn by the cosmos, by the Big Bang, by fate, by the gods. Hindus believed that the universe is God's dance and that we are being danced. Our, and, and our role in this dance, I think, or play, changes hour by hour, day by day, maybe minute by minute. Maybe we're hero now and villain later. Maybe we're victim now or king later. Either way, perhaps our best and only strategy is to play our part knowing it's just a part and what other choice do we have? To say, to say what Carl Jung called the unconditioned yes, as opposed to, I will agree to this life under only certain conditions. We don't get to pick those conditions. 
just as we do not grow our bones or our hair, we don't color our skin, we don't color our irises, all of this is done for us. I think it's quite obvious we don't think our thoughts. Suddenly there they are, arriving from the darkness outside of our control. Christ says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. This can be interpreted in many, many ways. One certainly must be, though, that it's a kind of salvation, whosoever will save his life, it's a kind of salvation to realize that there's much less there to be saved than we thought. The Tao Te Ching celebrates the empty hub of a wheel, the emptiness without which the wheel couldn't turn, or the emptiness of a room without which people couldn't gather, or the emptiness of a cup without which it couldn't be a cup. So instead of gaining titles or stature or attention or any of the ego achievements that we all so crave, it'd be better, as Chuangzo reminds us, to not want any of that. Chuangzo wants us to be lower, totally unknown by the world, almost ignorant, almost stupid, almost worthless. In fact, worthless. He wants us to be useless. There's this very famous poem by Li Po, or Li Bai, called Zazen on Qingting Mountain. Zazen is the practice of sitting, sitting meditation. You sit Zazen. And this is the poem. The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. It's better to be empty than to try to collect titles, attention, stature. I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that. All of it will be taken away. Whitman was right. Every atom that belongs to me is good belongs to you. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. If we recognize ourselves as constituents of a larger environment, there can be great peace in that. Another image I like for this, in addition to this Greek dramatic mask image, is the image, you know, when you drain a bathtub and the water whirlpools down the drain? So there's a shape of a whirlpool, and the shape looks stationary. I mean, in a way, you can tell that it's moving, but it's, it's there in one spot, but it's not actually a static object. It's made of movement. It's made of flux, which is exactly what we are. You know, this old truism that the cells in our body last year are not the cells in our body now. The thoughts I had five seconds ago are not the thoughts I'm having now. There's no static, solid object inside of my brain that is me. I'm a whirlpool of atoms, energy, patterns, and forms. This can be for some people, a disconcerting thought, but I think it brings a lot of peace. I love this Rilke poem. This is a stanza in a poem in The Book of Hours by Rainer Maria Rilke. He says, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. No feeling is final. Just keep going as if we had a choice. What else can we do? Chuangzi's version of this is the story of the useless tree. He writes, Carpenter Shi was on his way to Qi when he came to the place called Chu Yuan. There he saw an oak tree which was venerated as the home of the spirits of the land. The tree was so vast that a thousand oxen could hide behind it. It was a hundred spans round and it soared above the hill to eighty feet before it even began to put out branches. There were ten such branches, from any one of which an entire boat could be carved. Masses of people came to see it, giving the place a carnival atmosphere, but Carpenter Shi didn't even look around, just went on his way. His assistant looked at it with great intensity, and then chased after his master and said, Since I first took up my axe and followed you, I have never seen wood such as this. Sir, why did you not even glance at it, nor stop, but just keep kept going? He said, Silence, not another word. The tree is useless. Make a boat from it, and it would sink. Make a coffin from it, and it would rot quickly. Make some furniture, and it would fall to pieces. Make a door, and it would be covered in seeping sap. Make a pillar, and it would be worm-eaten. This wood is useless and good for nothing. This is why it has lived so long. Right? Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Give up all hope of being useful. Give up the craving to be noticed, an authority, to be dependent on for anything. And suddenly there you are. You have the freedom to be what you are. A hundred-year-old tree that is not cut down to become a boat, or a door, or a pillar, because being a tree is good enough. Chuangzi expresses this very beautifully in a little poem. One of the great things about this book is that it's written from time to time in prose and from time to time in poetry. 
is a little poem in book seven. Do not hanker for fame. Do not make plans. Do not try to do things. <laughs> do not try to master knowledge. Hold what is, but do not hold it to be anything. Work with all that comes from heaven, but do not seek to hold it. Just be empty. Perfect man's heart is like a mirror. It does not search after things. It does not look for things. It does not seek knowledge. Just responds. As a result, he can handle everything and is not harmed by anything. Be a mirror. I think that's so beautiful. You know, I've been very a very anxious person my whole life. Socially anxious. Chuang is reminding me that this is okay. It's okay as it is. That I should stop trying to have the yang without the yin. He tells this wonderful story of a man who has this enormous gourd that is too big to be used for pots or ladles or spoons. He doesn't know what to do with it, so he kind of curses it and resents having it. Somebody else tells him, you're upset only because you don't know how to use a large gourd. We have this flaw, we have this pain, we have this suffering, something bad happens to you. It's all part of it. It's all part of what is. It has a use, maybe not a practical use. It's like, I can use my anxiety to be better. Again, that's falling into the same kind of trap. I don't think that for me, that's going to be a helpful way of looking at it. But rather, these, what we think of as flaws or pains or sufferings or traumas or vices, they are a necessary part of the great play of the universe. The, when the villain of a play, you know how at the end of a play, all the actors come out and bow. And when the villain bows, we applaud the villain. We applaud the villain for being a good villain. Because without a villain, there would be no play. Without a positive end of the magnet, there's no negative end of the magnet. Without a north side of the mountain, there's no south side of the mountain, right? Every positive force has a backside, a bottom, an opposite, that isn't different from it, but part of it. In chapter 2, Chuangzi writes, Forget about worrying about right and wrong. Plunge into the unknown and the endless and find your place there. I love this acknowledgement of what can't be known. You know, we can't... Metaphysically, who knows where all this came from, what it will all become, why it's here, how seriously we should take it. We are creatures who can't know the answers to those questions. Plunge into the unknown and the endless and find your place there. Christ says in a, in a bit of the Sermon on the Mount that almost never gets quoted because it seems on the face of it to be so nonsensical. He says, be not anxious for the morrow. Like, well, this is, surely, shouldn't we get out life insurance and make a meal plan and shutter our windows when they tell us a hurricane is coming and try as hard as I can to get that job so that I can feed my family? Well, yes, we should act and do all these things, but why be anxious? You know, for me, this is what's standing out. This is what I didn't realize. Don't be anxious about it. Why be anxious for tomorrow? Tomorrow will be what it will be. You will prepare how you will prepare. If you're good at preparing, you didn't choose to be good at preparing. If you're not good at preparing, you didn't choose to be not good at preparing. We are masks in a play, and the roles are what they are, and we can't know anything about the ultimate reality of things, which is, I think, perhaps one of the things that this butterfly parable, maybe the most famous part of this book, is trying to teach us. We've all heard this before, may not know where it comes from. Chuangzi writes, Once upon a time, I, Chuangzi, dreamt that I was a butterfly flitting around and enjoying myself. I had no idea I was Chuangzi. Then suddenly I woke up and was Chuangzi again. But I could not tell. Had I been Chuangzi dreaming I was a butterfly? Or a butterfly dreaming I was now Chuangzi? However, there must be some sort of difference between Chuangzi and a butterfly. We call this the transformation of things. Is this the Matrix, you know? <laughs> Is this a computer game? Are we, being, are we being danced by the universe? Who knows? Are we being dreamt by a butterfly on some other planet? Who knows? Nobody knows. We can't know. And releasing the desire to know is where freedom lies. You know, the, the Hindus call this Maya. In, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna refers to this illusion. The, what we think of as tangible objects in the world, relationships between people, differences between subject and object, this is called Maya. And some small glimpse into the illusoriness of our everyday lives might be helpful. I always think of that exquisitely beautiful bit in The Tempest. Our revels now are ended. 
These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. So again, I'm not sure if Chuangzi is reading Shakespeare or Shakespeare is reading Chuangzi. We can be tempted to believe that none of this is real, and that this realization has thereby helped us achieve a glimpse into, quote-unquote, the ultimate reality that transcends this one. But is this belief real? So the what's real and what isn't distinction becomes, to me, of kind of little importance. <laughs> Whatever is happening to me right now feels real, and from my perspective, it is what's happening to me. I don't live in any kind of cosmic perspective, with any kind of view outside of what is from above. Real from my point of view is the only real there is, so it's the context in which I have to live. Birds don't try to swim in the ocean, except for the ones that do. <laughs> and fish, except for the ones that do, don't try to fly in the air. The animals seem to have figured this out. I love Rilke's Eighth Elegy. You know, the animals look at us almost pityingly, like, what are those fools doing, trying to be what they're not? It's not meant for us to know. You know, if you ask yourself, what is a constellation? Well, from this perspective, the Big Dipper looks like a spoon. But if you travel light years away and look at it from a totally different angle, it won't have that shape at all. And if you sit in the middle of it, it's not going to have that shape at all. What is it? It's not a thing. You know, it's not a thing. And so, if birds are meant to fly, and fish are meant to swim, what are humans meant to do? It's a tricky question for me. I think, again, it involves more paradox. Best definition of life I've heard, I think, is life is the desire that things should be different. Life is the desire that things should be different. And when, when I read Chuangzi, I think, yeah, they should be different. Namely, I should have the kind of life in which I want them to be exactly as they are. <laughs> That's a kind of vicious circle. How do I want them to be different? I want to not want them to be different. I don't want to crave or grasp. But to not crave or grasp at all, I think, means we're not human. A human is a thing that craves and grasps, you know? So paradoxically, part of relaxing and being what we are is acknowledging that we can't fully relax you know, if the goal is to become, if the goal of a fish is to become a fish, and if the goal of a tree is to become a tree, the goal of a human means letting go, yes, but also grasping a bit and saying to yourself, that's okay, I'm grasping. I am that which grasps from time to time. I am that which desires. I am that which strives and seeks and finds and doesn't yield. So perhaps we shouldn't try to change too hard the fact that we constantly want things to change. I've had times when I've thought, why do this? Why try to achieve this or that goal? Why try to publish that book? Why try to learn French? Why practice the piano? Why, why start or continue this podcast? I think it is true to say I am okay as I am. It, it's certainly true to say I can't be somebody else. I've, I've been wishing my whole life, oh, if only I was like him. If only I was like her. The cool kids. But we have to stop that. There's nothing to seek. There's nothing to do. There's no one else to become. However, part of what I am is a person who wants to learn French and wants to be better at the piano and wants to do the occasional podcast. So again, some grasping, some striving, some craving is necessary. Chuangzi writes, perfect happiness is not happiness. Perfect glory is not glory. What does this mean? Books like this can so often contain paradoxes that perhaps are meant to infuriate us or perhaps actually speak more or less common sense. If we had perfect happiness, if the world was nothing but pleasure, this is something we learn by reading Dostoevsky's Underground Man, if there was a pleasure palace and all of our needs were met and there was no suffering, we would smash it just so that something happened, just so that we'd have something to do. We want dragons to slay. If you thought, imagine living in a perfect heaven, where all of your needs are met. How long could you stand that? I think I would 
like a Star Trek holodeck, create programs in which I had to fight things, in which programs in which there were obstacles, programs in which I had to strive and struggle, and in which there was a risk of failure. It might be Alan Watts who asks us to run this thought experiment and then invites us to ask ourselves, well, how much danger would we include in this simulation? How much risk? How much failure? How much pain? How much suffering? And then I think Watts says, it's possible that at the end of this process, we would live a life that's identical to the life we're living now. That the amount of suffering we have in our lives, which can sometimes be immense, and the amount of pain is, as strange as this sounds, the necessary amount. It is the negative pull of a magnet that gives the positive pull its force, its charge. There's this wonderful bit in Moby Dick, where this is in chapter 11, near the beginning, where Ishmael is still sleeping. He's snuggling in bed with Queequeg. And there's a little paragraph here I wanted to read. He says, Yes, we became very wakeful, so much so that our recumbent position began to grow wearisome, and by little and little we found ourselves sitting up. Right, so even there, it's like, imagine, you, you know this experience of lying in bed. How long can you lie in bed without changing? You think the most comfortable position imaginable. After about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, it's, it becomes torture. Melville continues here. The clothes well tucked around us, leaning against the headboard with our four knees drawn up close together and our two noses bending over them as if our knee pans were warming pans. We felt very nice and snug, the more so since it was so chilly out of doors. Indeed, out of bedclothes, too, seeing that there was no fire in the room. The more so, I say, because truly to enjoy bodily warmth, some small part of you must be cold. For there is no quality in this world that is not what it is merely by contrast. Nothing exists in itself. If you flatter yourself that you are all over comfortable and have been so a long time, then you cannot be said to be comfortable any more. But if, like Queequeg and me in bed, the tip of your nose or the crown of your head be slightly chilled, why then, indeed, in the general consciousness you feel most delightfully and unmistakably warm. For this reason, a sleeping apartment should never be furnished with a fire, which is one of the luxurious discomforts of the rich. What a beautiful phrase. One of the luxurious discomforts of the rich. For the height of this sort of deliciousness is to have nothing but the blanket between you and your snugness and the cold of the outer air. Then there you lie, like the one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. This is so good. Then there you lie, like the one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. Warmth can exist only in the context of that arctic crystal. It's the same thing as the arctic crystal. It needs that environment to be what it is. Perfect happiness is not happiness, Chuangzi says. Perfect glory is not glory. So these days I'm trying to notice that when I'm grasping and say, hey, look, there's me grasping. Of course I'm grasping because I'm a human and a human is a kind of object that grasps. And to just leave it at that and to not be so judgmental about it. Hamlet says nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And Chuangzi, as if reading Shakespeare or Shakespeare is reading Chuangzi, says, it was when judgments were made that the Tao was damaged. It was when judgments were made that the Tao was damaged. Judgments of good or bad. Oh, this is bad. Cold is bad. Warm is good. These are judgments. And to make them immediately damages the only thing we have, which is what is right now, and the way it is and the way it can only be. So I get annoyed when my kids are loud. Of course I do. That is my nature. <laughs> You know, Chuangzi has the story in which he laments the fact that wild horses are made tame. And the more, quote-unquote, tamed the horses became, the more of them became sick and died. There's no need to bend nature to change a horse into something that it never was meant to be. In Book 8, Chuangzi expresses it this way, The duck's legs, for example, are short, but trying to lengthen them would cause pain. The legs of a crane are long but trying to shorten them would produce grief. So let the crane be a crane, let the duck be a duck, let the human be a human, and let each individual human be that each individual human. Everything achieves what is intended, Chuangzi says later. Everything achieves what is intended. So I'm always going to wonder 
why and how and what for and what next. But I think there's a way to be tranquil in this, to kind of be tranquil in the striving. Perhaps this is what is meant by the Taoist concept Wu Wei, which is often translated as inaction or effortless action. I don't think it's meant to mean fatalism or couch potato-ness. Yeah, let's practice the piano. Let's learn French. Let's try to become better parents. While in a broader context, being tranquil about our inability to make much progress on these fronts. I love this poem by Rilke called Autumn. To my mind, it it expresses this idea of Wu Wei really well. This is what Rilke writes. The leaves are falling, falling as from far away, as if distant gardens withered in the skies. They fall with gestures saying, no. And, And in the nights, the heavy earth falls from a multitude of stars into aloneness. We are all falling. This hand is falling. And look at the others. It's inside them all. And yet there's one who, with infinite tenderness, holds this falling in his hands. So knowing that this falling fits into primal or sacred or universal patterns, you know, I think this is a great source of wisdom and tranquility. We will always and forever seek what we don't have, more beauty, more perfection, and we will most of the time fail. But to step back and realize that this is the mask, this is the dance. This is being held by something or someone in a context that that simply is. At the end of all this, it sounds like I've said a lot, and maybe most of it contradictory or paradoxical. I've talked in circles, and I've learned nothing, and I've gotten nowhere. <laughs> but in a way, everywhere is nowhere, or everywhere is a center. And there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. I love this bit of Chuangzi in chapter 10. A great deal of knowledge is needed to make bows, crossbows, nets, arrows, and so so forth, but the result is that the birds fly higher in distress. A great deal of knowledge is needed to make fishing lines, traps, baits, and hooks, but the result is that the fish disperse in distress in the water. A great deal of knowledge is needed to make traps, snares, and nets, but the result is that the animals are disturbed and seek refuge in marshy lands. In the same way, the versatility needed to produce rhetoric to plot and scheme, spread rumors and debate pointlessly, to dust off arguments and seek apparent agreement, is also considerable. But the result is that the people are confused. So everything under heaven is in a state of distress, all because of the pursuit of knowledge. Everything in the world knows how to seek for knowledge that they do not have, but do not know how to find what they already know. Everything in the world knows how to condemn what they dislike, but do not know how to condemn what they have which is wrong. This is what causes such immense confusion. It is as if the brightness of the sun and moon had been eclipsed above, while down below the hills and streams have lost their power, as though the natural flow of the four seasons had been broken. There is no humble insect, not even any plant, that has not lost its innate nature. This is the consequence for the world of seeking after knowledge. The quiet and calm of actionless action, that must be Wu Wei, is cast aside and pleasure is taken in argument. It is in this nonsense which has caused such confusion for everything under heaven. Reminds me of this cartoon I once saw, that evolutionary chart. Apes become kind of proto-humans and then humans. And one of these, you know, kind of primitive life, the monkey is thinking, there's a thought bubble, and it's thinking, eat, sleep, reproduce. And then the next kind of pre-human, ape-like thing is thought bubble, is thinking, eat, sleep, reproduce. And then there's a human standing erect like a human thought bubble. And his thought is, what's it all for? (laughs) I really love that because, again, as soon as you make judgments and discriminations, the Tao is lost. Eat, sleep, reproduce. This is all the insects know or need to know and the trees, and the animals. But we're here. You know, we're here. Now we are humans. And now we do think, what's it all for? So in a way, I don't think the advice or the lesson is, let's try to go back to being an animal and not asking what's it all for, because that would be to push against the grain of what we are. What we are is a creature that asks, what is it all for? So let's be okay with asking what's it all for and getting nowhere in that pursuit.
We have to seek answers to that question while laughing at ourselves for trying to seek answers to that question. You know, he says this, Chuangzi says this in chapter 17, Know heaven and humanity's actions. Root yourself in heaven and follow virtue. Then you can bend, stretch, rush forward, or hold back, because you will always return to the core, and it will be said you have achieved the supreme. So yeah, strive. Don't not strive. Strive. But there should be a core in which we can return to and say, look at me striving. (laughs) How typical. How typically human. Thinking that I can change or improve. And then the next day you try changing and improving. And then lean back and laugh. Look at that. that, That's typical me, you know? You know, maybe we will fail. Maybe our attempts to improve, gain wisdom, gain knowledge, gain skills, develop talents, maybe they'll fail. But maybe they'll succeed. Often we succeed. And we can look back on our lives and notice the rewards of targeted efforts to change and develop and improve. But where did we get the skills to do that? You know, that's not necessarily proof that we are the ones driving the change. We're being changed. We have motives. We have capacities. If I've learned a little bit of French, how did I get that motivation or that ability to concentrate or focus? All of this is happening to me. You know, another book that comes to mind on this question is Don Quixote. We we do want to chase after giants and be noble and courageous and aspire to values or behaviors or actions that are better than those that we currently hold. But the reason that book has achieved such an immortal status is that alongside Don Quixote, there's always a Sancho Panza saying, no, those aren't giants. No, those aren't giants. Those are windmills. See what is. See what is. And the human is both a Sancho Panza and a Don Quixote at the same time. Chuangzi says, If you have grasped the purpose of life, there is no point in trying to make life into something it is not or cannot be. So, yeah, I'm going to keep reading books like Anna Karenina, and I'm going to keep asking, how can this make me better? What is this for? What should I do now? How can I make this wisdom part of me? So I don't hope or expect to eradicate that impulse. What I do hope to add to it, though, is, and I, again, I realize this is, a, is itself a kind of striving, pushing against the grain. What can you do? What I do hope to add to that is a second kind of mental note that says, of course you're trying to improve. That's what you are. That's what you're for. You know, don't get too hung up on success or failure. I started with uh, Wizard of Oz. Could end with another movie. Forrest Gump came to mind when I was reading this book. I haven't seen that movie in many years, so perhaps this analogy isn't the best. Also, my understanding of Taoism and Chuangzi is quite superficial. But I thought, why is that character of Forrest Gump so lovable, more than lovable, admirable, even enviable? Something we envy in his ability to be in the world. When he wants to run, he runs. It's a great scene when he's he's got this full beard, he's halfway across the country or something, and then he just decides, I'm done now, I'm going to stop, I'm going to go home. And so he turns around and goes home. If I remember correctly, that movie, the opening credits begin with an image of a feather being blown by the wind. And Forrest Gump is an embodied version of that feather. And he doesn't fight the wind. He doesn't fight these impulses. Yes, he craves. Yes, he grieves. Yes, he suffers. This is not to say that he has achieved a life without suffering. But it does seem that this is a character that has learned in a kind of Taoistic way to empty himself. You know, um, Chuangzi says somewhere else that everyone looks at the sage and thinks that the sage is a fool. We look at Forrest Gump and think he's a fool, but we also look at him and say there's something, some wisdom there. Not even wisdom. That's not even the right word. Embodied, embodied, applied wisdom. (laughs) He's emptied himself in a way, or is empty, and is therefore full, and is there, and can therefore be in the world, isn't fighting against the wind, swimming against the current. So, with the expectation and hope that this book will affect me and will not at all affect me, that I have the desire to change, the knowledge that I will keep trying to improve, together with the knowledge that I can't stretch my duck legs into crane feet, I'll leave it at that for now and wish you all happy reading.
Today's poem of the day is actually three poems of the day. Not three poems. It's okay, they're all quite short. I love them all because they are all very modern and new poems that contain very ancient wisdom. They're by Mary Oliver, and she has clearly been reading either Chuangzi or Laozi. They're very, very Taoist poems, to my ear at least. I think you'll notice that too. The first is called Farm Country. I have sharpened my knives. I have put on the heavy apron. Maybe you think life is chicken soup, served in blue willow pattern bowls. I have put on my boots and opened the kitchen door and stepped out into the sunshine. I have crossed the lawn. I have entered the hen house. Here's a poem called Backyard. I had no time to haul out all the dead stuff, so it hung, limp or dry, wherever the wind swung it over or down or across. All summer it stayed that way, untrimmed and thickened. Paths grew damp and uncomfortable and mossy until nobody could get through but a mouse or a shadow. Blackberries, ferns, leaves, litter totally without direction, management, supervision. The birds loved it. And the last Mary Oliver poem is called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the ravines. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed it, even though the best part, the best half of this podcast wasn't here. She'll be back, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, In the meantime, happy reading.